everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Gaming in the Wild, a video games podcast about games from the artistic, creative side of the tracks, from indie to AAA. My name's John, I'm your host. I'm recording late on Saturday, the 17th of February, 2024. Um, and you may have noticed from the, the podcast title there, but this is actually a special episode. This is episode 200 of the show, um, and it is also the fourth birthday of this podcast on, on the 19th of February on Monday. This podcast will have been running for four years. It will be four years since the first episode about um, Kentucky Route Zero uh, first went live. So it's a big landmark. It's kind of exciting for me. Um, it's really fun. I've been uh, chatting to the community who listen to this podcast about what to do for this anniversary. And uh, we got a whole bunch of ideas including a tier maker of every game that has ever been covered, but that is over 200 games. I think it's getting on for like 350 or something. Um, so that's a few too many. Um, there was ideas for a stream, and maybe I will do a stream sometime this week just to celebrate the 200th episode and the fourth anniversary. Um, but the idea that got the most popularity over in the Patreon Discord was to do an Ask Me Anything episode. Um, and I, I like to keep this podcast pretty much all about the games. You know, I, I try not to make it too much about me um, and about the show itself. But I don't know, once every hundred episodes, maybe it's a good time to be a little self-reflective and to look back at how the show has been, uh, the community that has grown up around it, all of the, the games that we've covered. And, and I do feel that, you know, when you bring a viewpoint to a podcast, when you apply yourself to talking about games for the hundreds of hours, um, you do end up outlining a philosophy, um, a viewpoint that you bring about games. And it's been really fun for me to do that, you know. It's been really fun to talk about hundreds of video games over the over the years um, of all kinds, from the smallest experimental indie games up to the big AAA releases of the moment. And, and as you do, you end up outlining your own ideas about what makes a game great, about all of the different interlocking aspects that make video games so fascinating, from gameplay design, narrative design, interactivity in gameplay, through to art, music, text, um, all of those different things, fonts and UI, the way that you interact with a game, control schemes and movement and feel, game feel and game juice, all of those things that make games, that make us love video games. And um, it's been really fun to, to tease out all of the little bits and pieces that stand out in games and make you feel something, make you enjoy games. And I have a lot of conversations with friends who maybe play less than I do. Um, a lot of friends that are in music or the arts or journalism or other things, you know, just people that I've met through my work and my life. Um, and I'm always, I'm always standing up for video games, it feels like. I feel like I'm always standing up for games as an art form, um, as, as the most profoundly, intrinsically, multidisciplinary art form of them all. Um, and I really do stand by that, and I've tried to be like a champion for artistic video games, and for video games as a medium. Um, and so for this episode, it is fun to reflect back across all of that stuff. Um, and I've decided that what I'm going to do is I'm going to start off with a little look back at the show, um, when it first started, how it has grown, what the most popular episodes have been, where in the world the listeners are, which was surprising to me to delve into. Um, and then I'm going to go into... Um, and ask me anything. I put out a call for questions on social media and Patreon. There were 50 or so submitted questions, which I've cut down to 
25 based on based on them covering similar areas and that sort of thing um, many about video games few about podcasting and a few about other things like travel about movies about other stuff like that um, some about the show like my favorite episodes ever um, games that I would like to see remade games that I would like to play for the first time all over again there are loads of really interesting questions and I think it's going to be fun to answer them um, so I hope that you're up for that. I hope that you're up for a little reflective episode about the four years of this podcast, how it has all gone, how it started, how it's going, and then all of the great questions that people have submitted. Big thank you to everyone who sent questions. They're really great. I'm looking forward to answering them. So let's get straight into it right after this. should say by the way that the music that we're listening to right now is from a game that I'm currently playing it's from the game Ultros um, I'm kind of glad that we have this little breather episode actually because I played Ultros last week and absolutely adored the game I'm still making notes about it I'm still thinking about it I'm going to review it next week um, it's it's a big game it's a, a big substantial um, very interesting game and I'm still processing it but it might well be like a landmark game in some ways or I don't know, it's certainly joining my personal indie pantheon, that's for sure. And when normal service is resumed next week on the podcast, you can look forward to the Ultros review. But back to the matters at hand, episode 200. Um, I thought I would start with just a few pod facts. I was looking back across all of the episodes of the podcast. The first ever episode was uploaded on the 19th of February 2020, and it was 12 minutes long. Um, this podcast started as a very, very short sketch of just some sort of high-level thoughts and overviews about games that I was playing. Um, and I have actually thought that re returning to Kentucky Route Zero might be a really fun thing to do at some point. Um, I did only talk about it for 12 minutes. I talked about it a lot in the, um, the Games of the Year episodes in 2020, but it might be really fun to actually replay the game and do deep dives into each episode, each of the five episodes. So that's certainly on my radar of um, things to do, things that I would like to do with this show. Um, and looking at the analytics back then, on the very first week, the podcast got 15 listens, 15 glorious listens from a few curious souls who clicked the tweet or found it by searching Kentucky Route Zero somehow in their podcast service. And um, I do wonder who those people were. I wonder who those very, very first listeners of the podcast were. And if any of them are still listening, then please do shoot me a message because I would like to hear from you. Um, by contrast, last week, the show got 850 listens, which is, you know, about average. So things have grown organically a lot over time. Um, but I did pop back and have a, a little quick listen to the start of that first episode. And things have changed, man. The difference in tone for me is really quite stark. Um, I have talked about this once or twice before, but I started this show whilst really quite ill, not doing well with men mental health and things like that. Um, and so as well as covering a lot of games and mapping out thoughts and feelings and critical opinions about video games on a personal level, um, from February 2020 through till now. This show has also mapped out like um, a process of me regaining my confidence and regaining my voice. It sounds so different now to those first few episodes and it's gratifying to, to look back and think about that progress. 
Um, but over the years, the show has had 67,000 players as a podcast um, and 19,000 views over on YouTube. So that's 86,000 players in total, which is not a big number in the grand scheme of things. You know, you see a lot of con content creators that are just racking up 10,000 views a week or something. But to me, for this little homemade project, um, it's a huge amount. That's, that's a lot of listens, man. That's a lot of people who have found it over the years, and it feels really good to look back on that. Um, as for the top five episodes ever, I do like to nerd out on analytics sometimes and try and spot patterns and see what people are enjoying. Um, and this top five is really a strange selection of games, actually. Um, in fifth place um, is episode 137, which was about Wavetail and Signalis. Um, two games that I don't think of as big smash hits, but somehow that episode made it up into the top five here. There's a whole bunch like that, actually. At number four was episode 116, which was about the Wild at Heart. Wonderful little indie game that I heartily recommend. Sometimes you get a game that takes cues from Nintendo and is almost as good as or better than some of the Nintendo classics. I put the Wild at Heart in that category. It takes cues from 2D Zelda and Pikmin. It's alongside things like uh, Chicory and Tinykin as the best Nintendo games that Nintendo didn't make if you know what I mean. Um, third place was this year's Games of the Year episode, which is really nice to see there. Those are always very popular episodes and I really enjoy making them. Second place is another weird one. It's episode 134, Somerville and Four Tales, two games that I I think I critiqued pretty harshly. Um, I didn't really like either of those games, so it's really interesting that a negative review of two pretty cult indie games crept into second place. And the top episode ever is a recent one, episode 190, just before Christmas, about a Highland song, Backpack Hero, and the two search terms that maybe popped it up to the top here, Avatar and the Game Awards. So an interesting selection. You know, I don't change the content that I make or the, the games that I cover based on listens, um, but I do enjoy the game of looking at analytics um, and seeing how the podcast is going, seeing what people are responding to, trying to spot patterns. It's a really fun part of it for me. I think it's the gamer brain um, interacting with the process of trying to make a podcast grow and trying to make a podcast good, you know. As for the audience, it's really interesting. If you click through to the analytics tab on audience, um, it says here that 31% of all the people that listen are in South Africa, which is very interesting. If you are a South African listener, um, say hi, man. It would be nice to hear from all of those uh, South African listeners. 23% is in the US, 14% is in the UK. And then there's a big drop-off um, with countries like Australia, Iceland, Canada, Germany, all under 5%. Um, but I really, really love scrolling down to the countries that have less than 1%, just a few listeners. There are countries like Malawi, Fiji, Bangladesh, Kuwait. So people all around the world have somehow stumbled onto gaming in the wild and a big hello and thanks for listening to people who are listening all around the world. It's a really nice feeling. I like to imagine people in all these different places and circumstances listening to the show. And the show has currently 60 patrons over on Patreon, um, 48 of whom subscribe um, and pay like a dollar a month or whatever to be part of the Patreon. Um, the Discord has grown really nicely over time as well. Um, I would like to say a big thank you to all of the people who are in the Discord and all of the people who have ever um, signed up for Patreon the people that are still signed up and subscribed, big thank you to you. And to the people who signed up for a while and then dropped out, um, I really appreciate it anyway, man. I really appreciate anyone that would sign up just for a while. And there are many reasons that people change. Sometimes they like to spread the love 
with other podcasts or content creators or causes that they support or listen to. Um, sometimes financial things change, circumstances change. So just a big thank you to all 60 patrons across the lifetime of the podcast. And by the way, just a brief plug, if you would like to become a patron, you can do so at patreon.com slash gaming in the wild. Come and join the Discord, uh, take part in events, get extra episodes, talk to other listeners, um, share your recommendations, get sale tips, all of that fun stuff. Um, it's patreon.com slash gaming in the wild if you would like to join in with that. And after that little podcast roundup, it's time to dive into the fun part and get to the questions. So we'll do that right after this. So I'm going to start off with a few questions about games. The first question here is from Poke Kid Blake, a patron of the podcast. Thanks for the question, Blake. Blake asks, if you had the power to will a remake and a demake of any game into existence, what would they be? That's a fun question. It's something that I have thought about, actually. I have thought about what are the games that maybe came out in the early days of 3D, um, because 3D games and polygonal graphics and things, they started off a little rough, you know, when you think back to like Ocarina of Time and Mario 64, it was a huge leap at the time, um, but they haven't aged well, you know. I think pixel art games are kind of timeless, but early 3D games kind of aren't. Um, they're a little rough by comparison to what we have now, and so some of those games have been remade over time, you know, or been improved, like if you look at Mario Odyssey compared to Mario 64, you can see that they've kind of completed that idea or moved it into the present day. But some games kind of got stranded back there. Um, and one that springs to mind for me is a game that I think I played on PlayStation 1. It's a game that I think about quite often. It is Soul Reaver Legacy of Cain. Um, it's like a strange horror game in which you play this um, shade. I think you start off as some kind of powerful vampire but you are cast down into a netherworld and you become a, a skeletal shade just clad in rags and you have to explore this world. Um, but the fun thing about it is that, I mean, the combat was good and the world was good. It was very, very affecting and just interesting and dark. But the fun thing about it is that you get to jump between worlds. So you can jump between a light world and a dark world and solve puzzles in really interesting ways. I mean, I've always thought that it's a shame that Soul Reaver was put on ice. I think it might be something of a classic answer, actually. I'm not the only person that talks about this. Um, Ralph over at Skillup, I think, has it in his Twitter bio. He has a remake, Legacy of Kane, You Cowards. So it's a popular choice, um, and there is rumblings sometimes that it might happen. It's one of those, those iced properties that just sort of sits there. Um, but I think that maybe it will come back sometime. Um, another thing that sprang to mind is actually a game that has been remade already. One of my all-time favourites, and a game that I should do a show about at some point, um, Shadow of the Colossus. I played that one back on, I think, PS2, I want to say. I still have the game, the physical game. It was so special that even when I got rid of all of my physical games to move to Iceland with just two cases, downsized a lot, I kept Shadow of the Colossus. I just felt that it was something special. It had these beautiful art prints, in it of um, all of the Colossuses or Colossi. So that would be a really fun one. I mean, it has been remade, 
but I just want that game to stay in the present. It's a work of art. I would love to see it update. They should remake it every like 10 years or something and just bring it up to the modern day. As for a demake, I think the fun thing about demakes is taking a really, really high production value game and squeezing it down. Um, so one that sprang to mind is perhaps one of the most high production value games of all time, um, Cyberpunk 2077. I mean, I remember playing Shadowrun on the original Super Nintendo, um, and I was so into Shadowrun, this cyberpunk thriller top-down where you run around and you hack panels and talk to people and get into interesting quests. I think it could be really, really fun to take Cyberpunk 2077's world um, and crunch it down into a pixel art game. I mean, especially given that Cyberpunk is originally a tabletop game, it seems kind of fitting. Maybe someone out there has done that already, or even just a segment of the game. Um, some of the ones that I've really enjoyed seeing were things like Last of Us. There is like a demake of that out there. That was a really fun one to see. I think Cyberpunk 2077 would be a fun demake. Um, the next question that I have here is from uh, Discord Stalwart um, and big supporter of the show, Narita Boy. He says, what is your favorite and least favorite genre of video games? Um, and can you give examples? Um, yeah, I mean, I like a, a broad selection of games, you know, of genres, but there are some that certainly speak to me more. more. And one that I always look forward to is sinking in to a really deep, big, substantial, lengthy, open world game. I think it's one of my favorite feelings to start a new open world game. Um, and to just feel that there is so much ahead of me. You know when you see the map that is all misted out, um, you haven't been anywhere yet, and you can see your little icon, and you know there is so much world to explore, and you really love the first part, like in Horizon Forbidden West, when you start off in that tiny little area, but you can see how huge the map is. Or in Breath of the Wild, when you start off with the Great Plateau, which in itself feels as big as A Link to the Past, and then you first look at the map and realise that this entire game world that you've just explored is just a dot on the map. Um, same for Cyberpunk again. Um, Red Dead Redemption 2, Fallout 4, just big, juicy worlds with so much to do in them. Um, I love the feeling of um, a big map to explore. Um, not so much a genre as a type, but I also really like just really intelligent, focused, unconventional indie games that surprise you. I think if you look back across the games of the year from this podcast... Inscription was in there, Immortality was in there. Um, and I think about things like Sable, things like Chicory, things that just present just a beautiful, crisp vision in an unconventional way that uh, twist the formula a little bit, that have this, this sense of craft to them, a sense of ingenuity to them. So I think unconventional indie games, it's not a genre, um, but it's something that sprang to mind answering that question. As for the least, I think... I struggle with JRPGs. Um, I often really want to play them. Um, I'm attracted to the art style and the high fantasy glamour of it all. Um, but there's something about just the grind, the length, um, and sometimes the, the shrill, shallow feeling characterization that you get in JRPGs, like characters that only have one quality. You know, I think about Tales of Arise, where there's like one um, big, chunky character who is only chunky and stupid, and then one very handsome character, and their one personality trait is handsome. I don't know. I struggle with it. I struggle. I wrestle with JRPGs a lot. There are some other ones too, you know. I mean, I used to play fighting games as a kid. I used to love Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter 2 and Tekken 2. 
used to be able to do perfect combos and stuff, but I have picked up a couple lately just to try them, like the demo of Guilty Gear Strive or the latest Street Fighter, and I just can't with fighting games anymore. Same goes for things like sports games. Um, so there are a few genres that I that I generally skate straight past. Um, so those ones are probably my least favorite. But I do try and stay open to all genres if I can. I think there's room in every genre for something amazing. You know, I mean, things like sports games. If you look at the forthcoming Beastie Ball, it's like an indie spin on a sports game. So I'm excited for that. And things like Rollerdrome, you know, there's room There's room for twists on formulas to make everything interesting. Um, the next question that I've got here is from Ben underscore underscore MC. He responded to my Instagram story and he said, you can play three games for the first time all over again. What do you choose? That's a fun one. You know, it's it's um, it's going to default back to some of my favorite games ever. And I'll be mentioning them a few times in the show. Um, but if I look at the, the games of the year, things like Inscription, a game that um, the main appeal of Inscription is how much it surprises you over time, the twists it has. Um, and you can replay a game with twists, um, but when you know them, it's just such a different experience. Um, I think a replay of a game with twists is actually a lot of fun um, because you can see them from a different perspective. You know what's coming. And so you perhaps have a, a different eye for it. But that feeling of shock that you will get in a game like Inscription, and again, in a game like Immortality, a game that has twists and shocks, um, you'll never be able to experience that again. So Inscription and Immortality, for sure, two of my games of the year from the last two years, I would love to experience that sense of discovery all over again. And speaking of a sense of discovery, um, I think Hollow Knight um, is one of the first games that I that I played when I started playing games again on my Switch after a long break. Um, I played Breath of the Wild, which was a huge discovery for me, just the first open world game I had ever played and the first contemporary game I'd played in the, you know, the new generation. Um, so Hollow Knight and Breath of the Wild both have such a vast sense of discovery in them. Um, Hollow Knight particularly, the further that you get down into the Hollow Nest, if you don't know what's coming, um, all of the different areas that you will find, all of the different story elements that you can unpick, all of those different dreamy biomes. I absolutely loved the feeling of being lost in the Hollow Nest and just really not knowing what was coming next. The sense of discovery when you find a new biome in that game is nuts. Um, and I have to give a shout out to Kentucky Route Zero as well. Um, again, I think it's uh, one of the best games I've ever played. Certainly one of the most creatively ambitious. It was an amazing journey that really hit me emotionally. I mean, I would love to feel that again. Um, but it has been a few years since I played that game. So I think perhaps this year I'm going to put a pin into the, the board and say I'm going to replay Kentucky Route Zero and give it the proper... Uh, gaming in the wild review treatment now that the the format of the show is more developed i think it's a game that really deserves that full treatment um, the next question is from my good friend kieran daly a sometime guest on the podcast you might have heard kieran in the games of the year episode or talking about death stranding or last of us 2 i think we also talked about um, and kieran says how do i complete a game john so I guess that Kieran has been uh, suffering from a bit of um, attention span flitting between different games. Um, well, I too am chronic for slipping off a game um, just because I lose focus or it doesn't fully grab me. Or Sometimes it's not even the game's fault. It's just because a new shiny thing came along and I moved on and just thought, I'll start it. I'll play 10 minutes 
and then forgot all about the game that I was playing. Um, but I have got tricks for this. So my trick for finishing a game is to play it every day, even if it's just for 20 minutes or half an hour, just play it every day, build it into the routine and don't stop until it's done. I mean, even if you just play a little bit on your lunch break, it keeps the momentum going. It's part of your day. Uh, it's part of your life. It doesn't just slip out of your memory and leave the space for another game to come in. So I think it's all about momentum. Um, don't start any other games in the meantime. I think that's a good one too. Try and uh, fend off that that feeling of um, novelty and wanting to just do the constant tapas because we're so spoiled with so many games now with Game Pass and all of the free games on Epic and new games coming out for $10, $20. It's very easy to just lose your momentum and slide off. So play it every day. Um, make it like a make a point of sticking to it. Um, and I think that that will help. It helps me to review games. Um, if I try and complete an indie game in three, four, five days and don't play anything else, um, then it helps me to form my thoughts and review the game for the podcast. So that's my tip there. Play the games exclusively and play them daily until they are done. And the next question I have here is from Joe New Dawn Games. You can follow Joe's New Dawn Games YouTube channel if you want to. Um, and Joe says, you are sent on a one-way mission to a faraway planet and you're allowed to take one N64 game, one PS5 game, and one Windows 95 MS-DOS game to entertain yourself with and to share with any new civilizations as a token from your home planets. What three games do you take with you? Um, that is, that's a pretty brutal selection of systems, man. I think N64, I mean, PS5, sure, Windows 95. I never had a Windows computer back then, you know, so I might... I might switch that one out for Commodore Amiga. That was my computer of choice back in the day. Um, as for N64, hmm, maybe a multiplayer game. Maybe Mario Kart, seeing as the N64 has four ports on the front of it. Maybe I could uh, play Mario Kart with the aliens and, um, you know, get some social time and bond with them over some multiplayer. As for the old computer, I'm going to pick Amiga instead. And I think I'm going to pick SimCity, the original SimCity. Um, I never did crack that game. Um, I played it so much when it first came out, but I always reached a point where I had too many roads, not enough taxes. If you put the taxes up, then people get annoyed. And if you keep the taxes low, you don't have enough money and the roads start to disintegrate. It's a puzzle that I never quite cracked. And I would like to have another go at it. And I don't know, maybe it would be interesting for aliens to see this top-down view of human civilization building up like a circuit board with all of the people moving around. It says a lot about civilization and city design. Maybe that would be interesting for them. As for PS5, hmm, I mean, I'm thinking about games that I would like to play forever if I've really only got three. Um, so there are a couple that spring to mind. I mean, No Man's Sky has endless building, endless potential. You can craft, you can, you can build out a huge camp. You can have different planets, underwater bases, moons and resource harvesting factories, and there's an endless universe to explore. Uh, maybe that would be interesting for them to see to see No Man's Sky, to see the, um, the human imagination of what a spacefaring civilization and a, a multi-species future might look like. A similar question with a slightly different focus came from friend of the show and one of the OG listeners of the podcast, Colton Goodman. It was nice of Colton to reach out. So hello, Colton. Uh, Colton says, if you could only play one game for the rest of your life, what would it be? Um, similar to the No Man's Sky one, but honestly, I think to, I think to puzzle games. 
I mean, open worlds are exhaustible, um, the systems are exhaustible, and they seem big, but they are limit limited in their content. Um, and so I think about games like Tetris or Slay the Spire, games that you can play forever. Um, Tetris is kind of a special one, huh? Um, it is what it is. It's just this perfect little puzzle game that you can play forever and never get sick of. I've never ever gotten sick of Tetris. I still play Tetris sometimes. I do love those kind of games. Um, Slay the Spire seems to have so much potential for that too. Um, the roguelike element uh, might come to the fore, getting all the different builds. Um, and it's different every time, and you are forced in different directions every time. So I think it would take a really long time to exhaust Slay the Spire. And I think Tetris is perhaps inexhaustible. Um, so maybe one of those on a, on a little handheld, like a Game Boy or um, a Switch for Slay the Spire. The next question is from Blinkoom. Uh, please do go and follow Blinkoom on YouTube. Um, it is Steve, who runs an awesome retro games channel um, and has been a guest on this show um, for the Games of the Year season last year. Um, he says, what are some of the foundational 80s, 90s, and 00s games that led to your current tastes? Hmm, good one. If I think back to the 80s, um, I was born in 77. So I think my first my first um, taste of video games was actually a text adventure called Sphinx Adventure, which I've mentioned before. Um, I have very, very fond memories of it. It was like just text on the screen. It says you wake up in a clearing. Um, there is a path to the north. There is a valley to the west, there are mountains to the east, there's a forest to the south, and you just choose the direction you want to go in. Um, if you go different directions, you might find a pirate who will mug you unless you do something. Um, you might find a cave that you can go and explore, and it just fired my imagination so hard, this Sphinx adventure game. Um, I think it's probably playable online. It's a, a, a very traditional text adventure, but it really sticks out in my memory as opening up that that possibility space and the fantasy space of video games in a really cool way. And I think that's part of the reason that I put Road Warden on my Games of the Year list in 22, uh, because Road Warden harked back to that original text adventure format, uh, but brought it into the modern day. Um, if anyone out there has not played Road Warden, I really recommend it. Um, as for the 90s, I'm going to pick, I think, A Link to the Past. It was the first um, Zelda game that I ever played. Um, and it really caught my imagination, um, just the feel of it, um, the look of it, the gameplay, the the unlocking different areas of the map, the feeling of grand adventure, the classic Hyrule field theme, um, the castle, the dungeons. It just felt so huge. It felt like such a big adventure. Um, and it really, really gave me my love of Zelda that I have to this day. Um, as for the Zero Zeros, that's a more tricky one. I think it has to be Shadow of the Colossus, you know. Um, that game was like a first taste of games as art, maybe, in, in a very specific way. There was something about the the melancholy, empty landscape. There were so many questions. It felt so lyrical. It felt so poetic. Um, and it, tr it triggered some like deep emotions somehow. It's really a, an affecting game. I think that Shadow of the Colossus, um, I don't think it is an indie game. I mean, it's published by Sony, um, but it felt like an art game. It felt like an art house video game. And I think that that, that feeling um, definitely paved the way for some of the thoughts that I've had about the, the directions that games can go in um, outside of the arcade routes, you know, outside of the, the pushing coins into machines routes and the, uh, you know, the, the Nintendo of it all. It was like there, there is a, a space for weird games. Um, and Shadow of the Colossus was perhaps a first taste of that for me. 
Next question is from Real Dave Jackson, friend of the show. I've been over on Dave's podcast, uh, Tales from the Backlog. I was on the Inscription episode, and we had a really, really good unpacking and deep dive into that game. Um, and Real Dave Jackson says, what video game smells the best and which smells the worst? Oh, man. Um, there are some pretty stinky video game places. Um, some sprang to mind straight away. I mean, Jabu Jabu's Belly in the Ocarina of Time. Um, I don't know if people remember that, but it's, it's a certain dungeon in Ocarina of Time that is just, it's like the inside of a giant creature and it is so disgusting in there. It's like pink and slimy. You are in the belly of this giant creature and that's where the dungeon is. And the dungeon takes forever, man. You're stuck down there for a while. And um, that's a particularly stinky Zelda moment. I also think of Scorn, um, that gothic sort of cyberpunky, slimy, um, HR Giga inspired science fiction game. Again, it's all the slimy entrails horrible machines that extract people's organs and stuff. It's so horrible. Everything weirdly fleshy and alive. I just, I don't know. It, it doesn't look like it would smell very good to me. I also think of Hellblade. I mean, um, I don't even want to think about the deathly smell that haunts that game. Same for Plague Tale. I think games where you play in a, in a post-apocalyptic environment with bodies everywhere and the fog of war, I certainly wouldn't want to smell it. Um, as for games that smell good, in my mind, the first thing that sprang to mind actually was um, a region of God of War. It was Alfheim, um, the Elf Realm. I remember walking into the Elf Realm in God of War 2018, um, and there is this thin golden light. Um, there are lilies and orchids and trees, flowering trees everywhere. It looks like heaven, man, and um, I bet it smells pretty good too. I bet it smells like, um, like fresh open lilies, that floral smell in the breeze. Um, I also thought about the various kitchens of the game Venba. Um, playing that game with the fresh spices, grinding the spices and mixing them into Indian food. I bet that Venba smells amazing. Um, and as for lush nature, I thought of Chia, actually. I bet Chia smells pretty good as you're wandering around those beautiful Australasian islands of New Caledonia. I bet the smell of um, fresh forest air would be pretty good too. The next question comes from friend of the show, Patreon member, Discord stalwart, Grabloid, who says, what is your ultimate video game soundtrack? Um, that's a bit of a tricky one, man. There are so many that I love. Um, I, my mind always goes to Disaster Peace, who made the soundtrack for Hyperlight Drifter. That one always sticks in my head a lot. I absolutely love the work of Scientific, who did the soundtrack for Oxenfree. Um, I think that last year, my soundtrack of the year was probably the Oxenfree Lost Signals um, soundtrack for the sequel. I also think about Austin Wintry, of course, with Journey and The Pathless um, and Abzu, some absolutely majestic orchestral scores there. Um, I think about Ben Babbitt, who did the Kentucky Route Zero soundtrack. It's just wonderful. Such a good soundtrack. It's actually a collaborative soundtrack, but Ben Babbitt's ambient stuff is just amazing on that one. I own some of these on vinyl, actually. Um, but the one that I'm going to pick to play here is actually Amos Ruddy, um, a wonderful ambient musician who did... Everything he's done, I love. He did Cloud Gardens, he did Citizen Sleeper, he did In Other Waters, um, and he made this wonderful piece of music that I think about all the time. Um, it's from the Wild at Heart score, and it's called Tunnel of Trees. <laughs> Thank you. 
absolutely wonderful work. I recommend going and checking out Amos Roddy's Bandcamp if you like the sound of that. All of the soundtracks he's done are just wonderful, um, but there are just so many, you know. Um, I absolutely love video game music. I, I have to give a shout out to the Ultros soundtrack most recently. Um, I think Rat Vader's soundtrack was really good on that one. Um, Rat Vader also did the sound for the soundtrack for the Gunk, which I loved. Um, I really loved the Wavetail soundtrack and, and both of the Far games, um, Far Lone Sails and Far Changing Tides. Um, both absolutely wonderful soundtracks. I think music can add so much to games um, in terms of atmosphere, emotional depth. Um, it just expands the palette of the game. Um, it means an awful lot to me. So good question. Lots of good soundtracks there. I actually have a playlist of some of my favorite video game music, um, and I will put that in the show notes. Next question is from Grub Hunter. Thanks very much for this one. Um, Grub Hunter says, have you ever dreamt of making your own game? If so, what would it be about? And who would you get to do the soundtrack? Um, I have game ideas for sure. Um, I have story ideas um, rocking around in my head um, that I never seem to quite get around to writing. I have one um, science fiction story in my mind um, about a facility deep in the woods where they are working on a cure for death. I mean, it's about time, it's about longevity, it's about medicine, it's about quantum science. It goes to some pretty wild places um, to do with time and things like that. So I've got an idea for a game that could be based around that story, but I think I really need to write the story first. Um, so I should really sit down and write that. Um, it's a science fiction story that's been knocking around in my head for quite a long time. And it is based on some real life science that is going on, and specifically um, a very eccentric scientist called Aubrey de Grey, who did a TED talk you can watch about a cure for death. Um, and that just struck my imagination. As for the soundtrack, I mean, some of the people that I just mentioned, Amos Roddy, Scientific, Disaster Peace, um, some of those ambient guys, um, I would definitely try and uh, hook one of those in. I played another piece by Disaster Peace earlier in the podcast, actually, from a game called Paradise Marsh. Um, and that's a game that I played specifically because I saw Disaster Peace's name attached to it. Um, I played the game because of him. I wanted to hear the music. And it actually has a generative soundtrack that changes based on what you do in the game from moment to moment. Uh, check out Paradise Marshman. Um, it's an underrated game. Um, Grub Hunter also asks, as a lifelong Nintendo fan, what are you hoping to see from the Switch 2 later this year? That's a very contemporary newsy question. Um, I am a huge Nintendo fan. and I did love my Switch, although I rarely touch it now. Um, I have become, to my own disgust, I'm increasingly concerned with fidelity, and I have my ROG Ally now, which has a 180p um, IPS screen, which is nice and bright and crisp. Um, the Switch's screen is obviously 720p. Um, I have the OLED model, but and I found that that helps with eye strain, um, but I think that increased resolution and clarity also really helps with eye strain. I have pretty bad eyesight, um, so I really hope that the next Nintendo console can display at 1080 so it's just crisper, sharper, and brighter. I hope that it's an IPS screen, so it's bright enough for the eyes. The old Switch's um, LCD screen was just so bad. And the other things that I would like to see are that the game library carries over. I really want my my 100-strong library of Switch games on my, my Switch 2. Um, I hope that it has a good form factor. I hope it's comfortable in the hands. Um, and also, I think, you know, I don't know if people ever actually use the Joy-Cons. Maybe kids do, you know, snapping off the Joy-Cons and two people playing together with those tiny controllers. I've done it maybe twice in all of the years that I've owned a Switch. 
Um, I really like the ally's solidity of the body. So even though it's um, maybe against the sort of child-friendly, family-friendly vision for Switch, I think most people will probably play it as a whole unit, um, and I would like a more solid handheld. And, and finally, maybe not too much like Wii-style funny business. You know what I mean? <laughs> Nintendo are famous for their gimmicks. I mean, I would really like this to just be a solid handheld system, honestly. Um, even though, you know, Nintendo's creativity is what it is. It makes them who they are. So I'm sure there will be a twist. But I would like just a solid handheld with a good screen and a big library. Um, Grubhunter has one more question. What would a Gaming in the Wild top five greatest games of all time look like? Um, I've mentioned a lot of them already. I think I probably have to go to the games of the year. There have been five games of the year um, since I started doing this podcast. So for Gaming in the Wild specifically, it might well be Kentucky Route Zero, um, The Last of Us 2, one of the most emotionally impactful games I've ever played, Inscription and Immortality, two crazy indies that I have talked about already on this show and that I absolutely adore. And Starfield was the last the last game of the year. Um, but I have to say that maybe maybe Breath of the Wild should be in there too. That is a game that I talk about a lot on this podcast. It is part of the podcast's name, Gaming in the Wild. is a little play on Breath of the Wild, um, of course, but also it is about playing games in Iceland out here in the wild, the northern tip of the world. Um, so maybe Breath of the Wild has to be in there too, but I'll, I'll take six. I'll steal six for my uh, greatest games of all time for this podcast specifically. Next question is from ChipDip18, friend of the show Jacob, who says, what's most important to you in a video game? Narrative, game design, art direction, etc.? Or does it vary based on the game and genre? Um, interesting one. I mean, it, it varies from game to game for sure. Um, what is most important to me? If I if I think about think about it and shoot from the hip, maybe it's feel. You know, in the game Sable, when you um, you get your speeder together, and then you head out into the world, and the dust blows up behind your ship, and you see a wide horizon before you, um, that feeling of fresh air, the wind in your hair. I love that feeling so much. That's a the things that I remember most about games are maybe to do with feel. When I think about Kentucky Route Zero, another one of my favorite games ever. I think about the the nighttime of it all at the start of that game when you pull into the petrol station the sun is going down the sun stays down for the whole game you play through the night there is a nocturnal quietude about the whole game that sinks into my bones when I think about Citizen Sleeper I think about the feeling of cold space it's also mechanical um, you yourself are a human in an android body um, the descriptions of how that feels, um, the fact that you can never really touch anyone, the fact that you can never really taste much or feel much physically, um, and the, the music and the sound of space, that loneliness, that coldness, it really sinks into my bones too. So maybe it's feel, and I guess that that is created from a combination of narrative, game design, art, music. Uh, music would be right up there for me as well, and sound design, just the kind of person that I am. Um, that's how I experience the world, it's how I feel the world, um, and I love it when there is a focus on that in games. Um, Jacob also says, how do you think indie games will weather the upcoming few years with significant decreased funding predicted? Um, I mean, there, there are shockwaves going through the gaming industry, um, for sure. All the layoffs we hear about, the, the US economy going up and down, um, the tech sector 
retracting um, or whatever they would say about it. Um, but at the same time, people are going to keep making games. People are going to find ways to make them. Um, I, I think that indie games are going to be just fine, you know? If you think back to Indie Game the Movie, if you've seen that one uh, with Jonathan Blow and the Super Meatball guys, uh, Super Super Meatball, Super Meat Boy guys, um, Jonathan Blow making Braid and the Witness, uh, Phil Fish making um, Fez. I get the feeling that there are a lot of people that, that are heavily invested in this, you know, out there. They just, they have a hunger to make the games and they will find ways to do it. Um, and whilst the industry might be in a crisis, I think that the artistic ambition, the creativity of people and the desire they have to make something awesome is not going anywhere. Um, and I think that that is the most important ingredient in uh, making indie games. One more question from Jake. What kind of game do you think would best capture what Iceland is like? Well, um, I, I guess one game actually did it. Um, I think the award has to go to Death Stranding. I think when you think of Iceland, I mean, there there is, of course, the city. There is, of course, the culture. There is, of course, the smallness, the wild weather. But perhaps the thing that characterizes Iceland uh, most to me is the wild nature, the glaciers, the mountains, the moss, the lava. And I think the Death Stranding actually captures that really well. If, it, if only you could turn off mules and um, BTs, um, then it's a hiking simulator, running across the rocks, finding ways around um, outcroppings, um, all of those mossy boulders, those rivers and fords. Um, the game really does capture the feeling of a hike in Iceland. It is like an Icelandic hiking simulator. It looks absolutely beautiful. And it captures some of the loneliness of Iceland too. I think it is very clear that Hideo Kojima came to Iceland and was inspired by it, listened to some low roar, went on some hikes. Even the postal centers that you find um, dotted around, those bridges, mail centers, look like little geothermal um, buildings that you see around Iceland. Um, so I think Death Stranding does a pretty good job of capturing Iceland's big, loud, wild nature. one more video game related question here it's another one from poke kid blake um he says can you envisage 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 <laughs> can you envisage your perfect game by merging different parts of some games that you love uh, what would the game be like um i do think that my favorite genre is probably as i said earlier third person open world action adventure so perhaps like a layered coherent mysterious kind of world um and a, a strong story I think about the, the intrigue of control and the architecture. I think about the, the story and the open world of Horizon Zero Dawn and Horizon Forbidden West, and they also have story hooks too. Um, I was so curious about what Aloy was doing, who she was, and what was happening in this world. It really, really hooked me. I like characters that feel real, um, well-written characters. I think about Night in the Woods as a game that has wonderfully written characters. Um, I think about A Short Hike. Think about Goodbye Volcano High, um, Life is Strange, just characters that have like snappy dialogue that doesn't feel forced. 
Um, that's really important to me. I think a lot of video game dialogue feels forced, so naturalistic dialogue would be really nice too. Um, I think about vibe, as I said in uh, response to Jake's question. So leaning towards the dreamy or the melancholic. I think about Kentucky Route Zero's nighttime. I think about Sable's empty wilderness. I think about the pathless, and it's like heavy sense of melancholy. Speaking of the pathless, also slick, nimble, enjoyable traversal and movement, which I talk about a lot. So the pathless, wavetail, solar ash, being able to move quickly and freely. A little bit like the dream of what Forspoken might have been like. So I would like to incorporate a little bit of that, like a double jump, a dash, a skate. I love that stuff. An incredible soundtrack, of course. So Far Lone Sails, Thea, um, the music that we're listening to right now from Hyperlight Drifter. And I would also say I, I like in-game help, whether it's hints or difficulty options. Um, I really enjoyed the difficulty options in, uh, in Control, actually, where you can change incoming damage, just tweak it just a little, up or down. Um, and I really like Chicory. Chicory has a phone-a-friend system where you'll find a phone box. You can call your parents and you can get a mild hint from your mum or an actual answer from your dad. Um, and there is an answer for every puzzle in the game. It tells you which map square to go to, and then it tells you in detail exactly how to solve a puzzle. I think that that's a wonderful inclusion. It's It stops you from having to and go and Google it, snap out of the game. Um, so I like in-game help, whether it's difficulty or whether it's hints. A lot of great video game questions there. Um, and right after this, we'll move on to some other topics. quick fire through some of these we're at 50 minutes now I feel like I'm losing my voice a little bit <laughs> thanks to you for thank you everyone for all of these great questions there another one from Grabloid um, what are your top three LPs to sit down to with full focus on the music from beginning to end um, this was an easy one actually I just um, popped three straight out here I think the first one is Joanna Newsom's Ys uh, YS it is a harp album um, with Joanna Newsom singing over harp and orchestration, beautiful orchestration by Van Dyke Parks. Um, and the album is a journey. It's a lyrical journey. It has reams and reams of lyrics that just take you places. Um, it's like a constantly unfurling poem. Um, I love to listen to that one from beginning to end, and I will sometimes sit down and just fully focus on that record. Um, I also picked The Knife's Silent Shout. Um, this is a very... Um, cold, modern, icy electronic album, but with beautiful emotional depth to it. Um, I think it's a journey as well. And the final one that I picked is a recent one. It's an album by Lowe, and it is Hey What. Um, it's an album that that joins all of the songs together. It's like this sonic palette that just swings from um, guitar music to ambient music to um, strange, echoey choral segments. Um, interspersed with just the most beautiful melodic songs. I think that Hey What by Lowe is a contemporary classic. I love to listen to it from start to end. Uh, next one from Poke Kid Blake. Um, could you share a fun personal travel story? Um, the first one that springs to mind actually is, is a misadventure. Some of the most interesting things happen when things don't go as planned, right? Um, I had a work trip to Estonia one time. I used to work for Tallinn Music Week. Um, I would fly out there and when they ask you to book your flights, they ask when you would like to travel. I would very cheekily ask if they could book my flight a week early. Um, and I would fly in, sort myself out for my own hotel, have a holiday, 
and then go into the uh, the festival, go to the festival accommodation uh, when they have the hotel for you and everything. But I would go early and have a little break in Estonia, meet my Estonian friends from the festival, musicians, people I'd met through working with the festival. Um, and I always looked forward to it. And one year um, I was getting ready to go. I clocked out of work and I went for a meal with my friend Nick to celebrate the start of my holiday. And he said, you're on holiday now. You're on holiday. Your holiday has begun um, so we ate, we drank, we drank into the night. We had a couple cocktails. We went out for a, a nightcap. Um, and lo and behold, I woke up the next morning having slept through my alarm and having missed my flight. Um, but there I was all packed and ready to go, a little bit hung over. And so I got online. Um, the only flight that I could see to Eastern Europe that day went into Riga, Latvia. So I booked it on the spot. Um, I figured out you can get a coach from uh, from Riga to Tallinn. It takes four hours. So I flew to Riga completely unexpectedly, booked into a cheap hotel, walked around the old town of Riga that night. So a complete change of plan. And there I was in Riga, just looking at this beautiful old Latvian architecture. I found like a, a beer cellar with people dancing and folk music and ate some kind of pork and dumpling and cabbage stew, drank some uh, some Latvian beer. Spent the night in Riga. The next morning, I got on the coach and went through the forests of Latvia into Estonia and arrived in Tallinn. And I think the the misadventure of it all made it so memorable. I was alone, traveling alone, as I sometimes like to do. And just the feeling of being out there in the world, far from everything, on a big adventure, something that I, I really remember. I've got many, many stories like that, but that's one that sprang to mind this time. Um, another travel question from Blake. What was one of the most memorable adventures you had whilst working in the media? Um, well, I think, I mean, I got to interview some really cool people, you know? Um, like when I was working in music, I used to do interviews with bands. I got to interview Dalek, got to interview Fever Ray, Kate LeBon, uh, Björk. Um, but I also got to travel to festivals a lot as well. So you go and review festivals or... Later on, I became a PR and I actually took journalists to festivals and looked after them, made sure they had a beer in their hand, make sure they get home at night, make sure they've got all the pictures they need, make sure their wristbands are okay, make sure they've got enough drinks tokens, make sure that everything's going okay. Um, so when I transitioned from media into PR, I was working for a lot of festivals. One of them was called Slutsfjell Festival out in Norway. Um, it's in a fjord near Oslo. Um, and they used to do the best hospitality Rather than putting us in a hotel in the town, they actually um, booked like a little chalet camp on an island out in the fjords. Um, and at the end of the festival every night, we'd watch the headline band. Then we have to walk down to the dock um, in the dawn light and take this boat. And we would get a little speedboat ride out across the water to this island. Um, there was a little clump of cabins together. We'd get dropped off at a jetty. We'd go and sit on deck chairs on the, on the porch um, and just have a few drinks and just talk and listen to music, watch the sun come up. And we should really have gone to bed. But one day I stayed up way later than everyone else. Everyone else went to sleep. I just felt awake. So I went for a walk in the dawn light and explored the rest of the island alone. Um, and it turned out that there were there were some pretty crazy things there. As I walked around this this dirt path around the coast of the island, I started to notice concrete structures that were kind of crumbling and built into the cliffside. Um, and I went and wandered into them. And it turned out they were bunkers. And I, I suddenly got this cold feeling. I was standing in a bunker, a concrete bunker. It was cracked and old, looking out through like a pillbox slit towards the horizon. And I realized that you could see all of the Oslo Fjord. I realized it was from World War II. It was abandoned. 
Um, and this would have initially have been used by the Allies to watch for invading forces coming into Norway. Um, and then eventually when the Nordics fell, used by the Nazis to watch out for the the Allied forces coming for them. Very, very strange feeling, a chilling feeling to be standing right there. So I don't know, being, being in the media took me to some pretty strange places, you know, um, and be, working in music, going on tour. There were lots of cool places, but that, that was one example that sprang to mind. Um, another question from Narita Boy. What are your favourite films or books? Is there a novel or film you would have liked to play as a video game? Um, I've got like a, a list that I trot out when someone asks about favourite films. I like Jim Jarmusch's Dead Man, um, like a slightly psychedelic feeling, a trippy cowboy movie made in black and white with an amazing Neil Young score. Um, I like Miyazaki, like everyone, Spirited Away, Totoro, Princess Mononoke. I love those. I rewatch them all the time. I really like Ang Lee's films before Ang Lee came to the West. Um, the early trilogy that he made about love, um, culture, about family. Um, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, The Wedding Banquet and Pushing Hands. I really love that trilogy of early Ang Lee movies. Um, I like Vim Vendors, Paris, Texas, Wings of Desire, Until the End of the World, um, interesting art house movies. I like classic sci-fi, Alien, Blade Runner, the first Star Wars trilogy, um, a few a few um, alternate sort of romantic films or films about love, like Lost in Translation and Her um, and Ex Machina. I love those sort of near future sci-fi love stories. Uh, my guilty pleasure with film is probably baseball movies. I don't even like baseball, but there is something about baseball movies that I really like. I really like Moneyball. I really like Bull Durham. Um, I wouldn't like to tell you how many times I've seen those. As for books, um, Sylvia Plath, The Bell Jar. Um, I love that one. I love um, Jack Kerouac, On the Road. I like Naked Lunch, William Burroughs. I love Jonathan Franzen, my favorite contemporary author. Um, I really like the book Pachinko by, by Min Jin Lee. That was an amazing one. Um, yeah, lots of stuff. Um, a question from Soccer. What's your favorite place you've ever visited and why? Um, favorite place. I mean, I've always been a bit of a city person. I like bustle. I like culture. I like food. I like art. So I love great cities. Um, I'm lucky enough to travel to Tokyo a couple of times, to Paris, New York a couple of times. Um, and obviously I lived in London for a long time. I can't get enough of those cities, honestly. They are so lively, so bright, so cultured, so diverse, such living cities. Um, so much to see and do, and all really interesting and different from one another. At the minute, I think um, Tokyo's got a place in my heart. I've only been there a couple of times, and honestly, I just I, I feel so intrigued. I want to go back. I want to deepen my relationship with Tokyo. Um, but I also have a soft spot for wilderness. I mean, here in Iceland, uh, the highlands, the Land Manalaga National Park with all of the beautiful um, earthy colours, the blue and green and orange and yellow in the soil, um, Kertlingafjöll up in uh, the highlands. It's an amazing kilometre long geothermal valley that just feels like walking on the moon. It's just unbelievable. And um, the absolute wilderness of the Faroe Islands. So the Icelandic highlands. I, I love nature too. I love dramatic nature, not just in Iceland. You know, I love the countryside of France. I love the, the Lake District, Snowdonia um, in the UK, and the Orkney Islands far to the north. There is a lot of the world that I'm still yet to see. I've never been south of the equator. I've never been to Africa, India, Australasia, South America. Um, a lot left to see, and I should really fix that. Question from Dovetail. Um, how did you end up in Iceland? 
Um, I'll try and keep this long story short, um, but I first met a couple of Icelanders at the Altamira's Parties Festival in the UK. It was the, uh, I think it was the Slint edition. Um, and I met these guys and we just um, hit it off. We partied together, we played football together. We, we got on like a house on fire. They insisted that I come and visit them in Reykjavik for Airwaves Festival. And I did, and I had the absolute time of my life. I met a lot of people. They were such good hosts. They introduced me to all of their friends who instantly became my friends. Um, so I just kept coming back and coming back. Something about the place made me feel calm, centered, and like myself. Um, so I just fell in love with it. And I kind of cultivated ties to Iceland over time. The music scene, the art scene, met a lot of people, managed to shift my work here. And eventually I just um, I just took that step. Um, so it's a place that I love. Um, and I, I kind of made it happen. I'm kind of proud of myself for doing that. It's the first time I ever lived outside of my my home country of England. Dovetail also asks, are you fluent in the language? And if so, how did you learn it? I am not fluent. Which means I speak just a little Icelandic. I know a lot of words. I can form basic sentences, but the grammar is an absolute nightmare, man. This is a tough language. You know, all the eafjatlajökuts of the world. Like the grammar, it's the gendered grammar is nuts. Um, it feels like you conjugate. There's like 20 ways to conjugate every word. It's bananas. And the pronunciation isn't easy, isn't easy either. Um, <laughs> like English from the sounds of my stuttering. Um, Dovetail also asks, is there a gaming subculture in Iceland? Um, I think so. I mean, I don't really know. I mean, people play games like everywhere, you know, they sold out of PS5s. Um, there are game stores, just not many. I have a couple friends that I swap games with. There is a development culture out here. Um, Eve Online is made out here. The game, the mobile game Quiz Up was an Icelandic innovation. Um, there is a Game Makers Iceland Association or like a, a loose-knit group. Um, there are a couple of people making games like uh, Jonathan Van Hove and Torvi who made the game uh, Nuts and are currently working on the game Phantom Spark, um, an interesting time trial game. So um, there are there are developers out here. There is a, a subculture of video game development and you know people play games like everywhere. Dovetail also asks, what are the biggest differences between cultures in the UK and Iceland? Um, I think that Britain has like a certain sparky, ebullient sense of humour that I really like. Um, Iceland um, and the Nordics, they have a much drier sense of humour. I think the, the banter of Britain, as much as I hate the word banter, like the pub culture, the chat, the back and forth, um, is really, really strong. There's like a cheekiness and a spark and a wit um, that I really like. I really do like British pub culture and just the friendliness of it all, especially in the north of England. Um, Iceland is different. It's uh, it's a bit of a colder culture by comparison, but it's also calmer. Um, it comes with less baggage, I think. It's not like a colonial country. So Iceland has this different, just a different feel. It, it's... It is sparky and it has a certain wildness and a certain madness to it, a certain Nordic darkness that I really like, a gleam in the eye. Um, and there's a tight-knit smallness to Iceland. You know, there are only 350,000 people in the country, um, whereas there's like 60 million or whatever in Britain. So there is like a family feeling in Iceland. It's tight-knit. Um, yeah, those are some of the differences that I think of. Um, I've got a question here from Blinkoom again. He says, do you ever sweat when the weather in Iceland is unremarkable because it ruins your podcast opener? 
Um, I do talk about the weather a lot, don't I? I did not do it this episode. Um, it is snowy, it is cold, nothing has changed. Um, but two things that I don't really have to worry about in Iceland are unremarkable weather or it being warm enough to sweat, to be honest. So I think that the, the podcast intro is safe for now. Uh, one more question here, just to wrap things up. Um, from Dovetail, of the 200 episodes you have done, um, which were the most listened to? I've answered that one at the start, I think. And which ones were your favourites? Um, when I think about the favourites, there are a couple that I am particularly proud of where I had thousands of words of notes. I think The Last of Us 2, I did a few episodes on that with guests. I had uh, Danny, aka Girl with Box. We had a really, really good heartfelt conversation about The Last of Us 2. Um, I really like doing the uh, the Death Stranding episode uh, with Kieran on the show. Um, maybe the guest episodes I'm really proud of. Um, I liked talking about uh, The Longing with Brad Galloway. That was a really fun one to do. Um, as for the solo ones, um, I think that the the Final Fantasy 16 episode felt good. I felt like I really managed to get somewhere in describing the ups and downs of that game. Um, I was very proud of the Immortality episode. Um, I really liked doing the, the developer interviews um, with Gareth Damian Martin on In Other Waters with... Um, the Sable developers, with the Signs of the Sojourner developers. Um, those were really, really fun to do. And of course, with Madison about the game Birth. I would like to do more developer interviews and guest episodes. Um, and hopefully I will be talking to the developers of Ultros. Um, so I'll be adding a fifth developer interview to the slate. Uh, and thank you very much to everyone for all of those questions. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of the community. Um, I value you all. And this was a really fun episode to make. <laughs> So there we have it, 200 episodes of uh, Gaming in the Wild. That was really fun. Thanks very much to everyone for all the questions. I really appreciated that. Lots of fun things to talk about there. I'm sure that you're all sick of hearing me yammering by now. We've crossed the hour mark. Um, but before I go, I would like to say a big thank you to all of the patrons of the show. So starting from the most recent, big thank you to Steve, aka Blinkoom, uh, Yob, Ray, Cousin Jack, Chris M, Artie Popov, Reed Scarborough, Zainam, Mark McKenzie, John Blackshaw, Wayne Mostert, Simon, Julia, Matthew, Adam Eric, Ayahen Pai, Lawal, B. Sushi, Andre Blake, the pre-order bonus, I think that's Cameron. Thanks very much to Dave Jackson. Thank you to Adam. Thank you to Snegu, Aaron, Justin, Nicholas, Soccer, Travis Lowe, aka Grabloid. Thanks very much to Eric, Jazz, Brad Galloway, Lockie Lazic, Dave C, Narita Boy, Major General, uh, Lisa Ciccarello, Richard, New Dawn Games, that's Joe, Jay Brent, Tim, Andy, Ashley, Don, Martin, Reagan, and Angela. So that's a big thank you to all of the listeners of the show, uh, all of the patrons of the show, rather. And big thank you to you for listening and getting this far. Um, if you would like to come and join the Patreon um, and spur the show on for another 100 episodes, please do so at patreon.com slash gaminginthewild, uh, where you can join up. Um, and just thanks for listening. This has been really fun. This podcast has meant a lot to me. Uh, it's meant a lot to me personally. It has given me some routine in my life. It has given me an outlet for all my video game thoughts. It's given me motivation to finish games that I perhaps wouldn't have. Um, and I've got some new friends from this community that's grown up around the podcast too. So it's meant a lot to me. Thank you very much for listening. And normal service will be resumed next week with the Ultros review. 
Uh, but until then, take care of yourselves and each other, and bye-bye for now. <laughs>